Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Seminary. This podcast is a variety of audio resources from around Southeastern. To learn more about Southeastern, visit scbts.edu. Thank you so much, Dr. Pace. It's a joy to be back here at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. I say back because I've been here many times over the years. I was probably here before most of you were born, way back in the 1980s. And I've enjoyed every visit and so many people I've met. Your president, Dr. Danny Aiken, is a dear friend of mine. I've known him for as long as I can remember. What a wonderful man. And what you're doing here, your focus on the Great Commission, your focus on winning people to Jesus Christ, your commitment to the Bible, the Word of God, those are stellar characteristics I think about when I think about Southeastern. Now today they told me to give a lecture, so my students sometimes say they can't tell much difference between my lectures and my sermons, Uh, so this may sound a little bit like a sermon to you. Uh, But it's really a lecture. Tonight, uh, can I say a word about tonight? I don't know what time that is. 7 o'clock, I will be speaking again. It's kind of a part two of this uh, series in the Student Center, I think. And so if you want to come, I'm going to be talking about St. Augustine. It'll be a little more biographical. uh, And in some ways, uh, I'm going to talk this morning about the great tradition. You know that term, the great tradition. I want to talk about that and tonight about St. Augustine as an exemplar of the great tradition. So uh, extending kind of my comments today and personalizing a little bit more. This morning, what I want to do is really in three parts. I want to, first of all, uh, take a little time to work on this definition of a great tradition. What is the great tradition? What do we mean when we use that term? And then I I want to take you to school with me. I want you to go to class with me, to school with me. When I was a student at Harvard Divinity School way back in the 1970s and uh, 60s even, I'm I'm that old, Uh, we're going to walk through Harvard Yard together. That's a part of my lecture today because I think some things happened there during that time that are uh, illustrative of the need for a great tradition. And then we'll close by making some applications uh, to what we can learn about this for the life of the church today, the life of faith today. So a few years ago, I had a privilege of meeting a great uh, scholar of the Middle Ages. His name was Jean Leclerc. He happened to be a Cistercian scholar, but he wrote a very famous book. Uh, the title of which was The Love of Learning and the Desire for God. I commend that book to you. And it's a book that talks about the dynamic that is at the heart of my concern today, the love of learning and the desire for God. Now, we think a lot about uh, both of those things, a place like a, a seminary, Southeastern Seminary, love of learning, Well, you go to class, you take exams, you know, this is an academic institution, it's accredited, all that stuff. So love of learning is very much a part of what we're about at a place like this. And desire for God. We're meeting in a chapel. It's a house of worship. We sang a hymn of praise to God. We said a prayer to the Lord. So the desire for God is also very much a part of what a place like Southeastern Seminary is about. 
But we very often bifurcate, separate these two terms. The love of learning is one thing over here. The desire for God is something else over there. And maybe every now and then they will come up and embrace one another a little bit. But we don't really think about them in terms of their relation to one another. I want to do that today. The love of learning and the desire for God. And the first thing I want to mention is these, these three words, learning, desire, and God, are all affectional terms. What do I mean by that? It's not just about our brains, our minds. That's very much a part of it, but it's not the whole thing. These three words, learning, desire, and God, summon us to love the Lord our God as Jesus commanded us in Mark 12, 30, to love the Lord our God with all our heart and mind and soul and strength. Well, what does the great tradition have to do with all of this? The great tradition is a term that entered into academic discourse uh, shortly after World War II, back in 1948. Uh, that's two years before I was born, so that's a long time ago. There was a book published with that title, The Great Tradition, by a professor at Cambridge University named F.R. Levis. And he was talking about the kind of books we read in English courses, the novels that we read. And he said there is a great tradition of English novels, and he included novels by Jane Austen and George Eliot and Henry James and Joseph Conrad and people like that. But I want to move from the field of literature to the one of theology and say that the great tradition refers to that body of wisdom, consensual and Catholic, small c, which is at the heart of all orthodox forms of Christian faith and life. And it's summarized in the great creeds and confessions of the church, which focus on the Trinitarian and Christological convictions expressed in the early councils like Nicaea and Constantinople and Ephesus and Chalcedon, all of which are expressions of the apostolic witness of the Holy Scripture based on the Bible, derived from the Bible. Now, another term for the great tradition comes from C.S. Lewis, mere Christianity. Now, mere is a kind of interesting word, four letters, M-E-R-E, and it means different things. Uh, it can mean just barely, minimally, merely. But a deeper and more original meaning of mere is really, truly getting to the very core or heart of something. That's what C.S. Lewis really meant by mere Christianity. It wasn't as little Christianity as you could possibly get along with. No, he wanted to deeply go into the very heart of the Christian faith. That's what he meant by mere Christianity. Here's another image for the great tradition, these creeds and confessions of the church. For one year, when our children were quite small, my wife and I, our family, lived in Switzerland the most beautiful country in the world. I've been to some other beautiful countries too. It's not the only one, but I think the most beautiful country, those Alps, 
piercing up into the sky. Well, we needed a car, so we bought an old, used, I don't even know what year it was now, cranker of a car, a Mitsubishi. That's a Japanese make of a car. I'm not even sure they make them anymore in America. But we, we bought a used Mitsubishi car, and we used it to drive around the Alps with our two little kids, toddlers, in the back seat. Well, along the roads, as you drive through the mountains of the Alps, there are these guardrails. And I came to really appreciate the guardrails. I'm glad they were there because they kept us from veering too far to the right or too far to the left. They kept us on the road. They kept us heading in the right direction. And that's kind of what the great tradition does. That's what these great creeds and confessions of the church, that's the function they serve. Uh, They're guardrails. They keep us on the road. They keep us from veering too far off on one side or too far off on another side. That's the great tradition. And I think it's something that we desperately need today. Now, don't let, let me stop and say don't confuse the guardrails with the road. If you do that, if you try to drive on those guardrails, well, you'll have an emergency very quickly for sure. They're meant, not meant to be driven on. You drive on the road, but the guardrails keep you focused properly on the road to prevent a terrible accident from happening. That's kind of what these creeds and confessions of the church are meant to do. Uh, They're not the road. Don't try to drive on them and make them the road. What is the road? Well, Jesus said that in John 14, 6. I am the road. We translate way. It's the same word, haros in Greek. I am the road. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He's the road. He's the way. But the guardrails are necessary, often to keep us from veering off into one terrible crisis or another. So let me just say up front, I assume there is such a thing as the great tradition, mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis's term. And it encompasses the whole history of redemption unfolded in the Bible, from creation In the beginning, God created the heaven and earth to consummation, the new heavens and the new earth. From one garden, Eden, to that eternal garden, the paradise of God in heaven. The great tradition is the unfolding story of redemption at the heart of biblical faith. And if you want a shorthand summary of it, it can be summarized in a lot of different ways. But one way that we sometimes say in our worship services is to, is to confess Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. And this confession is, is not just a matter of personal, private belief. Now, we can't do without personal, private belief because God made us as persons in his own image for spending eternity with him. So we must be born again. That's essential to the gospel. But it's not limited just to me and my own personal belief. 
It's relevant for the whole body of Christ. The body of Christ extended throughout time as well as space. That's really what the great tradition is about. It's a way of talking about that whole experience of what the New Testament calls that great Greek word in Luke 2.1. You know, do you know that verse when it says the Christmas story, Caesar Augustus sent out a decree that the whole inhabited world, the oikumene, we get our word ecumenical from that, that this world should, should be enrolled or taxed, oikumene, the whole inhabited world. That's what the whole body of Christ encompasses. And it's not just intellectual. Uh, it's not just a head religion, though there is a head religion dimension of it. You can't leave your head at the door. You, you bring it with you when you come to this chapel. But it isn't just merely, in the bad sense of merely, intellectual. It's also moral. It has to do with how you live in the world, how you behave, and it's spiritual. We have a course. Do you have a course at Southeastern in spiritual formation? At Beeson, we require spiritual formation of all of our students because we're concerned that you be built up in Christ, that you grow into the full stature of a child of God, of a redeemed son or daughter of God. And this results in a lifelong quest for that which is true and beautiful and good. Now, I said I wanted to take you to school with me and take you on a walk through Harvard Yard. Now, Harvard College was founded on principles like I've just been talking about. But by the time I became a student there during the period of the, what we called in those days the student revolution. We've had so many revolutions since then, you may not even know what I'm talking about. But there was a time, particularly in the late 1960s, when it just seemed the whole society erupted. There was a revolution on every corner, the late 60s and the early 70s. That's when I was a student at Harvard University. And uh, these principles that I've been talking about uh, tended to be downplayed, if not completely forgotten. And there was violence in the air, smoke in the air, blood on the ground. And it seemed for a while that everything was up for grabs. Well, does this sound like your world, our world today? In some ways, there are some parallels. So I'll walk through Harvard Yard. This is the second part of my talk. What the underground is in London. Have you ever been to London? You've taken the underground over there? We call it the subway in America, but the underground in London. Or if you go to Paris, uh, it's called the metro. It's the same thing. This underground train that gets you from one spot to another very quickly usually. Well, well Boston has one of those too. It's called the MBTA or just the T for short the public transportation system for a large, complex city. And they really need it in Boston. They say that the roads in Boston were designed to confuse the redcoats. So driving to Harvard, for me as a student, was not an option. I took the T. And most mornings, I find, found myself on that subway taking what we call the red line from Boston Common to Harvard Square. 
Each morning, I entered Harvard Yard through Johnson Gate, and I often paused to read an inscription that was chiseled in stone on Johnson Gate at the entrance to Harvard Yard. This is what that statement says. If you go there, it's, you can read it today. It hasn't been changed. It goes back a lot longer than my life and time, back all the way to the beginnings of Harvard College in the 17th century. Harvard was founded in 1636. And here's what somebody wrote about what they were doing, what they thought they were doing, what they tried to do when they established Harvard College back in 1636. After God had carried us safe to New England and we had builded our houses and provided necessaries for our livelihood and reared convenient places for God's worship and settled the civil government, one of the next things we longed for and sought after was to advance learning and perpetuate it to posterity, dreading to leave an illiterate minister to the churches when our present ministers shall lie in the dust. Now, as I was walking into the chapel, somebody told me that this college, Wake Forest College, originally was founded, I think they said, in 1834. Does that sound right? I don't know much about the origin of Wake Forest College way back in the 1830s, but I am quite sure that the people who established this place as a seat of learning, as a school, had in mind something quite similar to the founders of Harvard College in, 18, in 1636. Dreading to leave an illiterate ministry to the churches, they were concerned about what the quality of the ministry was going to be like in the next generation. And that's what you're concerned about in a school like this, in my school too. Now, is anybody familiar at all with the history of Harvard, with the founding documents of Harvard, knows? America's oldest university, Harvard College, had an orthodox Christological orientation from the very beginning. As the college laws of 1640, that's only four years after the school was founded, make clear, the founders of Harvard were concerned with spiritual formation as well as academic training. Let every student consider well the main end of his life and studies is to know God in Jesus Christ, which is life eternal, quoting John 17, 3. And therefore to lay Christ in the bottom as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. Seeing the Lord giveth wisdom, everyone shall seriously by prayer in secret seek wisdom of him. That was kind of the handbook for the students back in those days. To lay Christ in the bottom as the foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. And therefore your first obligation is not to learn Latin or Greek, though that was on the curriculum, or even algebra or what we now call science, what they called back then natural reason. But the first 
obligation was to seek the Lord seriously by prayer in secret. That means your own devotional life as well as common public worship, to seek wisdom of the Lord, to lay Christ in the bottom. It's kind of an old-fashioned way. We don't talk that way anymore. What it means is to cultivate a personal Christ-centered devotion while at the same time exploring and investigating every discipline and field of human learning. Now, back in the Middle Ages, people who were devising what we call curricula today, what you study when you go to school, the subject you have to take to graduate, divided it into two parts, the, what they call the quadrivium and the trivium. The quadrivium were four s- disciplines like astronomy and so forth, algebra, the, the, the numbers, the numerical, metrical way of learning, and the trivium. And those had to do more with what we would call history, philosophy, that sort of thing. That's how they divided things up. And it stayed that way all the way up to the time when Harvard College was founded. So in addition to the serious study of Scripture, which included a mastery of Greek and Hebrew and Latin, that was just given, was the central role of how to understand and interpret the Bible what we might call biblical studies today. You you teach that here at Southeastern. I know you do. But that was the centerpiece of the original Harvard curriculum. Why were they doing this? Why were they so intent on going through all of these different disciplines? Some of you have seen, probably all of you will recognize, the, the motto of Harvard. It's actually on the seal of the college. And if you go to Harvard and you buy a T-shirt, which you can do, every place has T-shirts. Y'all have T-shirts? Yeah, you can, you can get one at Harvard too, and it has the seal on it. Veritas. Veritas is the Latin word for truth. But that was not the original seal of Harvard. The first seal from 1650 had three words. In Christi Gloriam. Glory unto Christ. Later in the 17th century, Harvard's third president, an outstanding scholar and pastor named Increase Mather, reformulated the motto on wording on the seal to say, Christo et Ecclesia. And when you look at that Johnson Gate I was referring to that I went through every day, you look at that Johnson Gate, you can still see chiseled in stone these three Latin words. Christo et Ecclesia. What does that mean? For Christ and the church. Now, people debated about what that meant and how it could be applied. And later in the 19th century, another president, Josiah Quincy, discovered somewhere back in the archives an unused sketch of the seal with just the single word veritas. And that's why Veritas came to be the normal, recognized motto of Harvard College. But Veritas, even if you just use Veritas without Christ or church related to it, did not mean truth in some abstract way, a kind of disembodied principle. Because as 
the president of Harvard College at the time said, the heart of truth, the essence of truth is Jesus Christ himself. I am the road, the way, the truth, and the life. So that you can't really think about truth in any ultimate meaning of that word without also thinking about the one who said, I am truth. It was Christocentric to the core. And that's what the great tradition was meant to convey. This sense that, as Paul says, all things cohere in Jesus Christ. He is the creator of everything that is. The great tradition implies continuity with that which has come before us. Though planned as a seminary in the wilderness, that's what they thought of themselves as, I use that term, a seminary in the wilderness, on the barren, craggy shores of wintry New England, which could only be called an outpost of civilization, the founders of Harvard College understood their enterprise as a part of the historic, I'm going to use a Latin term here that I, I think is worth your thinking about, translatio studii. That literally means transfer of knowledge, transfer of learning, transfer of knowledge from one generation to the next. That's at the heart of what we do when we are conveying the great tradition. Where does it start? Well, you could say it started all the way back in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day and were given the charge to name the animals and to study the world that God had made. And thus the book of nature and the book of Scripture, as I talked about it in those terms, were to be studied in this epic succession of learning from age to age, from time to time. And one way of reading the Bible is to see it as a succession of learning environments, a succession of schools. There's the school of the prophets we read about under Samuel. A little bit later in the Old Testament, this school of the prophets is reconstituted under Elijah and his disciple Elisha. It's what Jesus also was about when he gathered his disciples together and taught them. Jesus and the apostles conveyed this message on to those who followed them. Origen and Clement of Alexandria in the catechetical school of the early church. They in turn passed on this sacred body of faith and knowledge to the palace school organized by Charlemagne in the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages we called them, led by a British scholar named Alcuin. And then on to the cathedral schools, the monastic and cathedral schools of the Middle Ages, which led to the rise of the universities. Universities arose in the the 12th, 13th century. But the universities back in those days thought of themselves as having a kind of apostolic connection. They carried their ideas right back to the New Testament. 
John Calvin was a student at Paris. And though he later repudiated a lot of the things they taught him there, he called it sophistry, wanted to get back to the Bible. He nonetheless saw the value inherent in the scholastic structures of learning, enlivened and reformed by the disciplines of humanism. And when he established his own school in Geneva in 1559, the academy, this was at the heart of the curriculum there. This translatio studii, the transfer of learning from one generation to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. And in England, Cambridge University, the second university founded after Oxford, which was the first, but Cambridge established a new school in 1584 called Emmanuel. You know that word, Emmanuel? It's in the Bible. It's in Isaiah. We think about it at Christmas time. The Lord God, Emmanuel. It's the name for Jesus Christ. God with us. God come among us. Emmanuel was the name of the college established at Cambridge in 1584. And one of the students there who sat in classes back at Emmanuel College, just like you sit in classes here, his name was John Harvard. And he immigrated to the New World. And he gave, donated, bequeathed his library to this brand new school founded on the craggy shores of New England, which later was named after him and today is still known as Harvard College, named for John Harvard, the inheritor of the great tradition of Christian learning and education. Now, none of this was to be seen anywhere around Harvard Yard on the morning of April the 9th, 1969, in what is called the Harvard Bust. Just inside Johnson Gate, a little bit to the right, stands University Hall, Harvard's main administrative building. Like I suppose, is it Steely Hall, where the president's office and other administrative offices are? That's, at Harvard, that's called University Hall. And on that morning, April the 9th, 1969, there was a great demonstration all around Harvard Yard, including University Hall. A group known in those days as the Students for a Democratic Society, SDS for short, several hundred strong, forcibly entered University Hall, took over the building, messed up the workers there, including a number of the university's deans who were unceremoniously escorted out, some of them literally picked up from their desk and taken outside. There was a standoff. There was an occupation. There was a strike. The president of Harvard at that time was a man named Nathan Marsh Pusey. He was a classicist by training great scholar of Latin and Greek. He was also a Christian, a devout Christian layperson, an Episcopalian. And about these protesters who had just taken over his office in that building, Pusey said, in their starry-eyed view, they think they are leading a revolution in America. 
This small group of people has lived in a world of fantasy. I don't think I can reason with these people. Sounds like an administrator, right? Well, he didn't reason with them for very long because the next day he called 400 state and metropolitan police who liberated University Hall and arrested some 200 of the student demonstrators. Heads were cracked, blood was spilled, and Harvard, a bastion of rationality and decorum and tradition, was never to be the same again. Now, of course, this was still in the 1960s with assassinations and racial violence and social upheaval spilling out almost everywhere. Things like the Harvard bust had happened at other places, notably at Columbia University in New York City. But we were different, we thought. We were Harvard. It couldn't happen here, not at Harvard. But it had happened. It did happen. Upheaval everywhere. What I want to point out is that in the midst of that kind of student violence, civil unrest, even then there were reminders of the great tradition at Harvard College. On the other side of the statue of John Harvard is a wide expanse of the campus bordered by two iconic buildings. One of these is Memorial Church, dedicated to the memory of the graduates of Harvard College who had fallen in battle over the years, the different wars that we have fought. Attached to Memorial Church is a smaller, older religious space called Appleton Chapel. Here, for centuries now, every school day has been opened by a service of morning prayer. I was the teaching fellow of a great scholar named George Hunston Williams who had an 8 o'clock class every morning in nearby Seaver Hall and I tried to make morning prayer every day with him. The speakers would range all over the map. You'd have everything from Buddhism to the Salvation Army. They even asked me to speak one time. But you didn't go for the speakers. What, what every day, no matter who the speaker was, that you would hear were some stable items in the liturgy of the morning. One was the reading of the Bible, the scriptures. Old Testament lesson, New Testament lesson. The Lord's Prayer was always recited every single time. And we usually would sing a hymn as well. Those are elements of the great tradition that were at place and still going on at Harvard Yard in the midst of this student revolt in 1969. You could hear the strains of that hymn being sung as the police cars swung into the campus to carry away those who were rioting, as we would say today. One of the writers who was arrested that day was a young reporter, later became very famous for CBS, named Chris Wallace. Now, across the lawn from Memorial Church stood Harry Elkins Widener Library, also named for a Harvard alum who perished in the Titanic 
And his parents, very wealthy people, gave this enormous amount of money to build what became the largest academic library in the United States. My great professor, George Williams' office, was in Widener Library, and I would often be found there in those precincts. And the day when all this broke loose in Harvard Yard, George Williams was one of several senior professors who spent the whole night in the library. When several hundred raucous students attempted to break down the front door, Williams and his colleagues stood together to block their entrance, even though they were mostly very elderly and weak and couldn't have fended off much of anything they'd really had to. They were armed with brooms and mops and whatever else they could find to guard that great collection of books, the accumulated wisdom of the ages in the library of Harvard College. They were especially concerned to prevent any damage being done to the card catalog. Now, I know most of you have never heard of a card catalog. We don't use those anymore because we have computers and so forth. But back in those days, if you wanted to find out where a book was back in the library, you went to the card catalog. And so these professors were guarding the card catalog with their life for fear that it would be destroyed and all that learning would go up in smoke. Now, just past Widener Library, we're almost finished with our walk through the, 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 the Harvard Yard. One more thing. Just past Widener Library, near the eastern entrance of Harvard Yard, stands Emerson Hall, named, of course, for Harvard's most famous alum, Ralph Waldo Emerson. Today, Emerson Hall houses the philosophy department. But when it was dedicated in 1905, it was also the home to professors of psychology, a new discipline back then, led by a great scholar named William James. James had been in charge of a committee assigned to a point to draw up a statement that would be chiseled in stone at the top of the building. And his, commi and his committee came up with a well-known pre-Socratic statement, man is the measure of all things. But when the unveiling took place at the dedication, James and his colleagues were surprised to find that President Charles Eliot, the president of Harvard, had chosen a different text, not one from Greek philosophy, but rather one from the Old Testament. And so today, when you walk through Harvard Yard and you chance to glance up at Emerson Hall, you will find there the words not of the pre-Socratic maxim, man is the measure of all things, but rather Psalm 8, 4, what is man that thou art mindful of him? Now, I'm not sure how orthodox Eliot was in his Christology, but he knew something about the great tradition. And so what I want to convey to you today is the importance of this inheritance that we have received, this heritage that we have received. Every time you go to the library and check out a book, every time you go into class and listen to professors teach, remember that they are speaking to you from a wellspring of accumulated knowledge and wisdom over the centuries over the ages.
And you're being given this not just to stuff your brilliant heads with more facts and data, but you're being given to this uh, in trust. You're being given to this as a gift to pass on to others who will come after you, to others who will carry this message forward. So that if Jesus tarries in years to come, when all of us here assembled today at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary shall lie in the dust, God be pleased. There will still be a school for the training of ministers of the gospel, faithful to the word of God and faithful to the great tradition of Christian learning right down through the ages. Now, how does this work out in the life of one particular person? Aurelius Augustinus, Bishop of Hippo, who died in 430. That's going to be the topic for my talk tonight, a biographical overview of St. Augustine and the great tradition. Thank you very much. Dr. Pace. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Consider giving to Southeastern Seminary online or visiting us for a preview day. For information on how to give or sign up for a preview day, visit scbts.edu.